0: To the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Kelly Sutton, who is a software engineer at Gusto based in San Francisco, California, in the United States. Kelly Sutton, we're so glad to have you on Maintainable.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Robbie. I'm really happy to be here. I'm also really happy to be chatting with someone who makes a tool that I use every single day. I'm a huge, huge fan of Oh My Z Shell. Your terminal looks like mine, I think.
0: (laughs) Uh, Admittedly, I was watching one of your uh, recent video of yours that was posted, um, and we'll talk about that with, uh, I think it was your Kent Beck series, and I noticed your theme looked pretty familiar, and I was like, hey there. So let's get on topic with the, with the podcast and thank you for being an OMyZ shell user. Yeah. So given your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common traits that a software code base is being well-maintained?
1: Yeah. So for me, maintenance always starts everything that we do as software engineer always starts with the customer. So the, the end user or maybe some internal customers, So you got to chat with them to figure out what is their experience you can have a lot of technical debt on a project that no one uses or a product that no one uses. And I don't even know if that's technical debt. It's just a product that no one uses, right? So I I like to remind folks that there are products out there that don't exist, and then there are products out there with technical debt. There's no in between. So for me, a well-maintained piece of software is one that the customers like using and that the engineers and the folks working on the product are able to change quickly and safely and confidently.
0: You touched on technical debt a moment ago, and, you know, outside of, so for projects that do have customers uh, and are being used, wh- how would you define technical debt?
1: So te- technical debt is this, is this phrase that everyone likes to use, but everyone means something slightly different or very different when they talk about it. You know, sometimes technical debt, like the most optimistic form of it is, well, this was a conscious trade-off that we made that we're going to go revisit later. Other times it's just shorthand for, well, this code is a mess. The best umbrella term that I've found to talk about technical debt is just the things that get in the way of being able to change the product quickly and safely. There are some symptoms around this, which are if the changes are disproportionate or to make a very small change takes a lot of effort, you know, maybe like a team working for a quarter. That is a good example that you've got some technical debt. It starts from the outside for me. It always starts from the symptoms. And I always start like any conversation about technical debt with a, well, what do you really mean when you say this? (laughs) Because it might just be a mess. It's true,
0: right? There's often a lot of times I find that developers are mislabeling, or maybe maybe it's not mislabeled, it's just they're talking about code that someone else wrote that maybe no longer is there, or maybe they wrote it themselves. That was from a different era of how you would do things today. And so maybe you disagree with the patterns that or you see some of the... uh you're rubbing up against some like tension there or there's some friction, I should say, in the working around things versus like working within the way the system was designed. I'm curious, you know, you touched on when traits of, of well-maintained software that customers say like using the software, how are you able to ascertain that? So
1: there's a lot of quantifiable metrics or like yeah. folks try to quantify it okay. uh, through NPS scores and things like that. Usually a conversation goes a long way. The best thing that I have found, and it's pretty loosey goosey, is our customers just a little bit uncomfortable paying for it, right? And that, t- that usually tells me that the price and the product is just right, where it's, you'll get a few complaints about price, but you won't get folks refusing to use it. This assumes that you're charging for your product and you're not you know, like monetizing your, your users through advertising or something like that. But in like a SaaS model, it's, A little bit of complaints about pricing, but not too much, and and a very, like, sticky product. Yeah, yeah,
0: I can imagine that. All right, so an NPS, what is that for those that might not be familiar?
1: NPS stands for Net Promoter Score. It's an invented metric uh, used to decide if we have a good product or not. The score itself is represented as a a metric between negative 100 and 100, and the way you derive this is you ask customers how likely would you be to recommend this product they give it between 1 and 10, there's a formula, a 9 and a 10 means something, a 7 and an 8 means something else, and then a 1 through 6 means something else. But it's it's just a way of assessing, like, okay, do people like this product enough to recommend it to their friends or their colleagues or folks in the industry?
0: And on the other point related to, you know, your developers are, they feel confident enough to make changes within the system. Is that a subjective thing that your your team kind of feels, or, or do you have some objective ways to kind of talk about that with amongst yourselves.
1: Yes. I I tend to be pretty subjective in my approaches to this because we can always find objective metrics later as we start discussing problems or as we start to to decide to dive into problems. So in one example, right, a way that, or an indication that a project might be difficult to change is if we make a change and another bug pops up, if we fix one bug, but another one comes up, right, that's, evidence to me that our system is not safe to change and you could you could quantify that later but there is just like a a pretty like objective fact like without knowing exactly how many bugs are popping up that this is just a property of of the system that we're changing
0: what do you believe developers often get wrong when they're discussing say existing
1: systems together it's always hard even even if it's yourself working on a system that's a few years old and that you know, you were you were working on it four years ago, let's say. Keeping in mind the context and the constraints with which it was written is always the hardest thing. Code written before product market fit in a young company should look much different than code written after product market fit. The sleepless nights are like the, the weekends that you spend standing something up. That code is going to look different than the Well, now this is like a functional business and it's kind of a, it's just a, it's a nine to five thing. And it's a problem if it's not a nine to five thing, because that means we have such a large operational burden that company doesn't exist without people constantly keeping an eye on it. It's, it's still code, but the type of code that it is almost has to change over time. So that's, that's probably the big, the big thing, understanding the context in which, you know, the, the messy thing that we now hate, uh, (laughs) we're trying to change, understanding the context in which it came about, and then also being able to distinguish if we do have a problem, does it need a technical solution or a social solution? Can you give me an example of a social solution versus a technical solution? Sure. A social solution is we just all get in a room or a Slack chat or whatever, and we just discuss a problem and decide we just want to change our behavior as people into how we write code a certain way. Maybe we codify that into a linting rule or some other automated check, but we all agree that, okay, we we want to stop doing this. Or we want to head in this other direction rather than putting a technical mandate on that. So recently you completed a video series with Ken Beck on the
0: desirable properties of tests for those who haven't seen it yet, by the way, I'll include a link to the, to that in the show notes as well for folks, but what are a few desirable properties of tests
1: Yeah. So Kent wrote a blog post that has 12 desirable properties of tests. These include properties like readable, test should be writable, test should be, test the behavior of the system. They should be structure independent. Test should inspire confidence. They should be specific. They should be predictive. And that's all that I can remember off the top of my head. There's, there's a few more in there.
0: (laughs) I think a couple of those like, you know, without, diving too deep into the weeds there, like, readable, I think most people might understand, like, have a grasp of that. When you say structure-independent, can you kind of give a quick little intro to what you mean by that? So
1: there are two types of ways of changing code, right? We can change the behavior of the code, and we can change the structure of the code. Changing the behavior, the customer is going to see the effects of that. Changing the structure, the customer will not see the effects of that immediately, right? So things like refactoring, whether they're small little refactorings or larger system refactors, those are structural changes. And as when you're writing tests, you want your tests to only exercise the behavior so that you can refactor things inside of a class, let's say, Uh, maybe make a method private uh, that didn't need to be public in the first place, and that should not break any tests. Right, so we want our test to be behavior sensitive but structure insensitive. And we've got an episode on on each of those properties.
0: Nice. Is it safe to assume that Gusto has its own fair share of legacy code and
1: accumulated some technical debt over the years? Well, there. I mean, there are two businesses. There are the businesses that don't exist, and there are the businesses that have technical debt. So we are in the second bucket there. <laughs> yeah, maybe a little bit of context for the for the listener here. Gusto is a Uh, We call ourselves a people platform for small businesses in the United States. So what does this mean? We handle your payroll, your benefits, uh, since that is provided by the employer in the U.S., uh, and a few other HR-related features. Just to give some context into the scale there, we currently process about 1% of the U.S.'s small business payroll, which means we're running, I think when I last did the math, it was 0.1% of the U.S. GDP runs through our our little rails application here the company's eight nine years old at this point so we've got a lot of code a payroll system can only be so small just because of how many laws like human laws you have to cook into being like computer code and i would
0: imagine you know as a Business owner myself, just as a disclaimer, we are recently customers of Gusto as our, our, ourselves. There's no correlation to this. This isn't a paid advertisement or anything. We recently went through that process. And I, I know that there's a lot of complexity with, like, say, all right, you've got employees who live and work in your own state. But there's also probably scenarios where you have employees that work in your state but may live in a different state. They may do some of their work in a different state or all of their work in another. There's a lot of complexities to that. So I can't even imagine... I'm sure it probably gets even more complicated down to like the city level or zip code level as well. So you can only imagine. What are some examples of obstacles that your team has climbed over when dealing with an older code base?
1: Gusto, the like the Rails monolith, which most of our engineers here work in, it maps pretty closely to, I would say, like the industry trends in like a Rails code base. So you can definitely tell that, you know, we were Rails new was you know issued sometime in like 2011, 2012, and we've kind of gone through like the fat models, skinny controllers. Now we're in like service objects, right? There used to be a lot of DSLs in the mix, but we've kind of undone all of those recently. And now we're kind of getting into... Our our Rails looks a lot more like vanilla Ruby than not. We're starting to question a lot of some of like the Rails defaults and questioning like, okay, are these the right thing for our business? right now
0: as someone that works in the ruby on rails community as well for a long time i know that can be it can be a challenge is it safe to assume that you also might from like an interface side of things have seen a lot of transition to like the javascript frameworks you are using in the that code base
1: oh yeah absolutely so we started off with backbone right and then we made the decision to switch to react in 2015 or 2016 it was a little bit before my time but we're still living in two worlds here where some of our code is in Backbone and some is in, in React. Sounds familiar. Yeah. And, you know, we used to be Sprockets, and now we're Webpack type of stuff. So we've, we've kind of rolled with the, rolled with the punches, and we, make a, we invest a lot in kind of keeping our app looking like a Rails new app. That's good.
0: Do you, out of curiosity, struggle with uh, keeping somewhat up to date on latest major versions of dependencies and or Rails itself?
1: Yes, we used to have a much harder time. Now we've got a pretty smooth process. I'm on I'm actually on the team that is orchestrating their Rails upgrade right now. So we're going from 5.1 to 5.2 sometime in the next few weeks, hopefully stepping up to 6.0 a few months after that. The goal is we want to we want to be running Rails master
0: You kind of follow a dual boot
1: mode type of approach. We don't we don't exactly know right now, but we uh, we want to start giving back to the community, the Rails community, and we think for that to happen, we need to be on Rails Master. And from a security standpoint, we think that getting close to Master is is probably a pretty good idea. Yeah, and I mean a lot of a lot of things over the years, like we had to write custom things for, like a bridge between Sprockets and Webpack, for example. Newer versions of Rails kind of just handle that for you. So. We miss out when we don't keep up to date with Rails versions. And then there's the entire security aspect to it as well, which is extremely important for us, uh, since we deal with a lot of paychecks.
0: Yeah, I I, I could understand that. You know, and I was, I'm also curious about how does your team, what's your, could you have any sort of like best practices on when to decide to use third party open source gems and libraries and knowing that may impede you from doing certain types of upgrades at times?
1: As our monolith has kind of grown, you know, the, the constraints or what it takes to get a new gem introduced has increased, right? Because our philosophy kind of as, as engineers at Gusto is that engineers should have as much autonomy as possible while decreasing the collateral damage that they might inflict on other teams. And unfortunately, adding a gem has a non-zero effect on things like boot time and maintenance costs. So these are, they're at least a conversation these days. And it's always surprising how little of a gem we might actually need or use. So in some cases, we'll just pull in like the one or two source files that we need.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. That's something I've seen a lot of companies starting to move towards is like, it's maybe really helpful that you're talking to that, you know, that earlier phase of a lifecycle of a software project, regardless of what tech stack you're using, is this might lead on a lot of those open source gems or third party libraries. To help you f- figure out whether or not you have a product market fit for that product. And then later on, you might need to potentially like strip some of that stuff out because it could, you know, it could slow you down in other ways. But if you also have the resources to do that, and I think that's the, uh, the concern is especially if it's not necessarily the same team of people that were around early on and now, and you're like, well, how well tested is the application? How confident are we that we can remove this without breaking something? Cause I don't know how exactly how it's being used. Or is this gem even being used? Is probably a a difficult question for some teams, I think, to answer sometimes. There's things I would like to see Rails to kind of continue iterating on and maybe help give some tools on how to help identify that stuff. Because I'm I'm so curious how to like better track that stuff down like in a more automated way of
1: some sort. Yeah, the the biggest ones that we've had an issue with are the things that monkey patch, let's call it the Ruby standard library, right? Those are always the hardest to deal with from an upgrade standpoint whether it's upgrading versions of ruby or rails it's really hard <laughs> uh, to deal with gems where there isn't like a clear interface and it's it's just like i well include this and then things either magically work or are faster or something like that so it could be very much
0: very very challenging so i'm curious how you know from like a process side of things you mentioned like if people are looking at evaluating dependencies you might have a conversation or something about that now instead of a developer just adding one cuz there's some cost to that but you know i'm assuming your product team has a big backlog of things to work on and they're prioritizing how do you prioritize maintenance type work in amongst that is do you are those separate types of items that get added in there or do you kind of like sneak them into those feature enhancements as like some subtasks that need to happen.
1: So there's a few different flavors to this. So Gusto is a bit larger. So we've got, I think, 200 engineers right now, all mostly working out of the same Rails monolith. So there's a few different flavors to that. So I'm currently on what we call an application infrastructure team. I call ourselves like the custodians of the monolith. So we keep a kind of like a global view of this stuff and we'll help resolve disagreements between two teams if they want to use two different gems or two different approaches or something like that. So we take, we take a more global view. So in some ways our job is just not only to some degree, like cleaning up some of this older code, but also deciding what constraints should we put in place so we don't get into this situation again. And maybe constraints that apply a little bit of good pressure to nudge folks in the right direction for in, in the name of like customer experience, right? And then with like individual teams, I think they, they all operate a little bit differently. The the way that I've seen it work best is when you refactor without asking or it's a it's a forgiveness based refactoring rather than a permission based refactoring. You just fold it into the work that you're doing. So the the whole reason why we refactor is to make changes, customer visible changes easier. So we, we put the structure changes first, and then we layer on the behavior changes after that, because the whole reason that we change the structure of code is to make it easier to change the behavior. And so that's that's why, like, as software engineers, we just need to do it and not ask for, for permission for it. And creating a ticket for it is one way of asking for permission for it. Like, this is this is just part of the job. It's part of the craft.
0: I'm always curious how, you know, because I've I've heard different people talk about maybe they're because it's cultural challenge. I think sometimes that spawn these different approaches, whether or not you fold it in or you put it in a different wish list of things you want to take care of. And, you know, I've seen on teams and my own my own team, even at times where they'll have a bunch of things in a list of like, here's things we know we need to go back and clean up so to get it out of their head. So they're not carrying it. Or if someone brings it up like in three months, like, oh, yeah, well, there's already a ticket for that. If you want to go throw in some extra notes or if you want to volunteer to take care of it you know, feel free to help advocate for doing that soon. But you know, when they fold it into the work or it's just part of the task of completing something, it's like when, whether or not you write tests or not, is that part of the task at hand? If you're making a change to make sure that it works and how are you testing it to verify that it works and that it may be not seen as a separate thing, but it, I think it's always a little bit more challenging for some teams when it's not always necessary, but it might make your life or your future life or your team's life a little bit easier in the future if you do take those
1: extra steps now. And this isn't to say like you should always like get the perfect design up front before you build anything, right? And in fact, you'll almost never be able to do that. The whole reason we refactor is to make the the changes easier we should do that first and then do like, you know, like the second or third thing that we wanted to add to some functionality or product suite. Do you find yourself
0: more on team monolith or team microservices?
1: Oh man, we're, we're really getting into it. I am on, let's go with the, the usual answer. It depends or it's complicated, but I will, I will clarify uh, my thinking there rather than just leave it there. Short term, I'm always on Team Monolith because that allows you to learn the most about the product the fastest, right? I I don't have like a good name for it. I've been like throwing around the the phrase like primordial soup development. Like you throw it all into one pile and you see if the customer uses it. You see if it brings any value to the business and you're also learning about the domain. Then as you crunch on it for a little while, the seams will become apparent. Like the design will emerge from this primordial soup. And then you can start to extract things out into microservices. Starting off thinking that you know the boundaries can be very dangerous and very expensive to unwind later. Some of our recent engineering efforts have actually been pushing two microservices together because, you know, you you just start asking silly questions like, well, how do we do distributed transactions between, like, MySQL and Postgres? And then you eventually get to the point where you're like, well, this would just be a lot easier if they were just in the same application, right? So I usually encourage folks, unless you really understand the problem domain of the thing that you're about to build and you n- absolutely know that it can be separate, start in the monolith, see how things evolve, and then pull something out.
0: Okay, because this has been, obviously been a big topic for a number of years now, and, and, and I think in the Rails community, it's been a, a contentious topic as well, and so I hear you on the uh, not knowing the best answer to that all the time because it's you get a lot of different opinions there and i think it's always interesting that i find that there are teams that are really small that have really embraced microservices but almost to a detriment that now they have too many different things they're jumping in between their systems to try to keep it all up to date and figure out which you know how this is all working and then like well that's in that microservice so it's almost like premature microservicing if that if, I don't think, if that's a term
1: or not Premature abstraction. Yeah. I mean, m- microservices are a way of abstracting pieces of code so that's much clearer what are the public interfaces versus private implementation details. But almost every programming language gives us public and private. So if it's separation that you're looking for, you can do that within a monolith. You have to think a little bit more and you might have to like jump through a few hoops, but it, it is possible and kind of like that that step of deciding what's your public interface and what are your private implementation details if you can get like parts of your rails application organized like that then separating them out into services becomes a lot easier it becomes a you know a few day ticket instead of like a month's long process
0: right i think that's some good advice there what's your you know you you had touched on primordial super yeah. development Is
1: i'm that- i'm still trying that out if if we come up with a better phrase on this show so be it.
0: Where, where did that come
1: about? It came about, I don't know, from my head. <laughs> <laughs> it's the visual that I, that I come up with, which is just throw everything in the soup, see what comes out.
0: That makes sense. And I, I can imagine that you're always going to get a little bit a different um, outcome. And so it's never going to taste the same, depending on who's part of that process. We'll be back with our interview with Kelly in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to thank you for making time to listen to Maintainable. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing the links among your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Also, do you know someone in our industry who I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Kelly Sutton. What is something that, say, five to 10 years ago, you strongly believed about software development
1: that you've completely come around and changed your mind on? Well, so I, I've only been in the industry for 10 years. So 10 years ago, I was just graduating school. I placed not enough value on systems working correctly. To some degree, Rails kind of encourages like a certain like loosey-goosiness of, of like, well, this will work most of the time. And in a distributed system, you kind of need to think like that anyway. But I, so like uh, going into the history books, like I, one point I, I had a startup with a few other folks called Layer Vault, which was a a Rails app, basically trying to be GitHub for designers, right? But with a more Dropbox style interaction pattern, magic folder, but we version control all of your, all of your design files. And this is when folks were mostly working out of Photoshop and Illustrator and, and Sketch was like a brand new thing. And I would say like we, we synchronize your files among your coworkers correctly about 98% of the time, but 2% of the time or 1% of the time, we would just move your files to the trash and in other disciplines, (laughs) you know, 99% sounds pretty good, but you would not, you would never board a plane that landed 99% of the time. Right. And I think the same goes for software that folks rely on and pay for. And I didn't value that enough. And I, and quite frankly, I didn't know how to build software better at the time. And, and so I I didn't, that was probably like the biggest thing that I've changed in my mentality since then.
0: And do you think, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned Ruby on Rails as an example there. Do you feel like there's something about the fact that it's a dynamically typed language, or language versus a static type language? Or is this something different about the types of tools that we're using to kind of really verify that
1: things are working as correctly, in your words, uh, as as they can be. I usually don't find too much more value out of statically typed languages, actually. But what I do find value out of is, is seeing how the data flows in between the different parts of the application. Like uh, one of my few criticisms of Rails, even though it pays my paycheck, it pays <laughs> a lot of paychecks, actually, through Gusto, is that it's really hard to see, like, okay, how does this data get from the controller into the view? What from the controller is actually being used in the view and kind of like a the same things that let you move really quickly in the early days in Rails make it difficult to understand the application later on. And so you need to flip that on its head. So answering simple questions like what does this need to do its job, it tends to become more difficult in uh, older Rails applications.
0: Interesting. Does your team have much kind of experience or learning how to take advantage of things like software or platforms that are more focused on
1: observability versus just say error reporting? So I'll I'll be honest, and I don't quite. I've been following the conversation, but I personally don't have like a good mental distinction between the two yet. We have monitors and alerts set up in Datadog, and hopefully, my coworkers listening to this aren't pulling their hair out (laughs) listening to me. uh, describe this, but usually when there's a problem, we can get to the bottom of it or get get to the place that is causing the problem pretty quickly through the tools that we have—a uh, mix of you know Datadog, New Relic, and and logging.
0: Yeah, it's similar. I mean, just being open to It's still, so, it's I've I've talked with a few people on even on the podcast that that like that's a the world they live in now, and I feel like it's just there's still a little bit of a a delta between where they're at and where I'm at and really understanding. I'm like, well, I think our projects maybe don't weren't that yet but we're also not like working on even like someone like Augusto having 200 engineers we're not working with teams that large by any capacity so I'm always curious how different teams are taking advantage of things like that do you think that you know having been in the industry now you know for a little under 10 years give or take do you find that all the the tools that we have available now for software developers when it comes to CI build systems and I don't know if you're doing any sort of CI deployments and everything as well like through that approach but you find it's easier for individual developers on a team to kind of have a good mental model of the whole system end to end now? Or do you feel like it's it's a little bit more like they need to only know as much as they really need to know and there's some other department that's kind of responsible for that now?
1: So there's there's a, two sides to this, I think, which is as a software developer, you need to be able to work on a specific piece of code and be sure that that is doing its job and it's not blowing things up, right? So you kind of need that safety, like, well, if I make this change, I'm not going to make some other team's life hell. But on the other end, you kind of need to know how things are, like, loosely stitched together, right? Uh, So I've I've heard, like, other folks describe this as, like, T-shaped to some degree. You, You need, like, a certain layer of knowledge that's a mile wide and an inch deep, and then you need to specialize in a few certain spots, but you can't get away from knowing a bit about those, those two sides and designing your software in such a way where, yeah, you can change a model, for example, and not have not cause downstream errors. Yeah, so I think, like, to so the question, like, you kind of need to know both, and but you should have the choice of when do you need to learn stuff. You shouldn't have to learn everything all at once to be effective because that can be very intimidating for someone earlier in their career. But eventually you need to gather the experience and knowledge of how this stuff works.
0: Have you seen any, and I don't know if this is something that your own organization or past places you've worked at, like uh, onboarding process or like any sort of educational tracks that your team tries to make sure that people are getting some exposure in a regular cadence or versus it just kind of being something they learn when they encounter it and be like, oh, can someone help me understand this? Or I'm going to go search the Internet now for some some guidance.
1: We've experimented with a few different formats, Augusto. We've done, like, uh, classes that are kind of, like, dispersed throughout, like, the first few weeks. We've done, like, boot camps where it's like, okay, everyone get in a room and we're going to build a, a new Rails app in a week or two. We're still iterating on that, seeing what seeing what works best. But yeah, I, I think the Rails framework is really good at this in that you only need to learn things when you need to learn things. I think uh, DHH calls this conceptual compression, right? Like Active Record takes care of so much stuff for you, which is great until you need to learn like, okay, what is this actually doing under the hood? Like how, what's the SQL that's coming out of this? What happens to the database when I write an N plus one query, stuff like that. Yeah. But from a, from a gusto perspective, we're iterating with different formats. And then that's another reason why we try to make our app look as normal as possible so that our documentation isn't just what we write. It's what the entire industry has written, right? I want New Engineers Augusta to go to rubyonrails.org and look at the docs there, and that will map one-to-one with what they see Augusta.
0: Some really good advice there for, for folks to consider. A couple last quick questions. First, I want to get some advice from you for our audience. So let's imagine that there's a few developers listening to this episode, I hope, and they've been at their company for a few years now, and they don't feel like their concerns about long-term maintainability of their software have been heard from, say, stakeholders or for maybe developers that have been there for a really long time perhaps they've tried a few times to advocate for refactoring certain areas of the code base improving the test suite upgrading the framework that they're using it but i've heard not right now maybe a few too many times and are starting to feel like it's no longer worth asking what advice would you give them on how to take some action today outside of giving their resignation notice
1: well good news there is that it sounds like there's more than one person so that's a that's a great step so this is something that i've i've struggled with throughout my career and, and still struggle with to, to some degree. But my colleague Kent Beck, you know, he's been doing this longer than I've been alive. His advice in this situation is the following. Try to convince one other person to see it the way that you do or try something that you want to try. Keep it small. Just just see if it works, right? Because that's it's important for both of you, right? Because it, it tells you like, okay, is this Is this thing that I read about viable? Is it actually going to make sense to the business? Are we going to be able to do it? You'll de risk the project in a lot of different ways, and you'll come up with another teammate in the process. Keep it small. Try to convince one other person to do it. See where that takes you. Be very vocal about your results, right? Always think in results, right? Uh, Like, hey, we didn't ask for permission to do this, but we did it, and now this endpoint is 10% faster, and conversion rate ticked up by. 0.3%. Point three percent No, no business counterpart is going to be like, shame on you for making the business better. Right. <laughs> no, 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 no.
0: I, I hope that would be a very rare thing. If ever, maybe another piece of advice is to try to find a job where you get to work with someone like Kent back on a regular basis.
1: Yeah. But, I mean, there's, there's, there's one Kent though, and uh, I get to work with him. So dibs, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I highly recommend folks like crack open a copy of like XP Explained, and it's weird reading this book that is almost two decades old and how true it still is for like day-to-day life as software engineers. And, and you'll find a lot of things that we just take for granted in that book, which were radical ideas at the time, or extreme ideas. <laughs> Couple last questions. What
0: non-software development book do you find yourself most often recommending to people in our industry?
1: So I went to a conference in Seattle called Deconstruct run by a guy named Gary Bernhardt. The first year it was there, and there was one book that was independently mentioned in three different talks called Seeing Like a State by, I think the last guy's name is James Scott. I want to say his last name is Scott. So a few caveats to this book. It is very academically written, so you need some patience with it if you haven't read a book in that style. But the book talks about governments trying to effect change on their citizens and the trials and tribulations that result. So it talks about interesting things like the collectivization of farming in early 20th century Russia. It talks about building cities out in the middle of nowhere because This time we're going to do it right. And we learned all the lessons that we made from previous cities. So this is, these are stories of cities like Brasilia and Chandigarh in India. And then it also discusses like a few other things where governments try to affect change. They put some metrics on it of like what success looks like and then seeing how that goes wrong. And the book kind of ends with like four points about like, well, what do we do about all of this? And the four points are very, very similar to some of the ideas from XP Explained. It's uncanny, and and it's also just four points. Things like, you know, as soon as a metric becomes a goal, it ceases being a useful metric. Uh, you always need to plan for human inventiveness. Like, never assume that the big rewrite is going to fix everything, right? Or that it will even be used, you know? And, and so I, I really like the book because it captures this Organic element that I often see in software and software organizations and something that has nothing to do with software at all. But reading it, if you just swapped out the nouns, you'd be like, "Oh, this is this is just this is software, right?" <laughs> Seeing like a state, highly recommend. It.
0: Okay, great. I'll definitely include a link to that, and I'm really curious about that. I'll have to check check that out myself. And where can we listeners best
1: follow your thoughts on software development online? I am Kellysutton.com And I'm Kelly Sutton on on Twitter. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Kelly. Thank
0: you so much for joining us at Talk Shop.
1: Thanks for having me, Robbie.